This morning we're going to be working our way through a few verses written by the Apostle Paul, one of the men that Jesus left on earth to represent him and to help others come to understand who he is and what his coming means for the world. And Paul did much of his work by writing letters, sometimes to churches he had never met, other times to churches that he had helped to found, churches that needed a lot more help than he could give them during the time he had with them face to face. And that is great news for us. Because through the letters that he wrote, we get insight into what he was teaching, to what Jesus gave him to say to the people that he met and introduced to Jesus. We get to, to be flies on the wall, if you will, for their, their learning and get to, get to hear from our Lord through Paul even today, so many years after. We're going to be talking about Abraham this morning. That's what Paul talks about in the passage that we're going to consider. The move that he makes here in this passage about Abraham reminds me of one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. is known for in his rhetoric. One of the things that made him so persuasive and compelling, one of the most strategic moves that he made was in his speeches and in his writings where he's arguing, persuading a nation to change its ways. He's arguing and persuading based on commitments, principles put in place at that nation's founding. His famous I have a dream speech, one of my favorite lines in that speech is that he describes their purpose as they gathered there in Washington as being to to cash a check. That, That in the founding of the nation, there were promises made, implicit promises made in the principles on which the nation was founded that they were simply wishing to to claim for themselves, to push the nation towards greater faithfulness. So he goes on. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's not hard to see what King was doing there. He was taking the founding principles, the founding language of a nation in order to encourage that nation to embrace those principles in a deeper and more fundamental and more broad way. Paul's making almost that same move here in Galatians 3. He's arguing with people who disagree with him about what the Old Testament, the laws of Moses, mean for the life of Christians in their day. He's arguing with people who have a high value on the founding of Israel as a nation and on the the documents, the laws that gave them their identity as a nation. Paul sees that and so he goes there. What we see in this passage this morning is basically Paul giving a commentary on some of the most important fundamental verses from Israel's laws about who Israel is. And he's going there because it's a shared source of authority and because, more importantly, because he knows that those documents, those laws, that perspective agrees with him. He wants to show his friends and really expose their opponents. He wants to show them that that when he talks about faith, he's not introducing a new idea. He's not trying to go against Moses. He's going back to the founding of Israel itself, to the very promises on which the nation had its existence. He's going back all the way to Abraham, the father of their people. Because from that time forward, getting into and embracing life as the people of God has always been about faith. That's the case he wants to make. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front that this section of the letter, and, and really the, the, the next couple of sections after it, 
it includes a lot of technical language and a lot of back and forth on what might seem like antiquarian, even sectarian interests. Stuff that's only of interest to parties that are long dead and that were maybe fairly isolated even when they were alive. Insider baseball is the term I would give to the way that these arguments can play out, at least the way they can initially land on us. As if we're, what we're watching is a conversation that was, was barely relevant even then and certainly hasn't been relevant for a long time since. Some of us will feel that way when we first read through it, I think. So I think our task this morning is to see why this section is so important for what Paul's doing in his letter. This is not the last time we're going to hear about Abraham. Abraham is really important for what Paul says throughout Galatians. So we need to understand why this section matters for this letter. But even more than that, even more fundamentally than that, our task this morning will be to understand why this argument about who really is with Abraham, who stands with what God has already said through the Old Testament, we're going to see why this conversation is one that touches on our deepest needs now, because it does. What we're going to see, I hope, by the end of our time together, is a world of need and hope a world of need and hope that this passage comes from and speaks into that isn't so foreign to us after all. I want to talk about this morning the blessing of Abraham because that's the focus of the verses we're going to read. Several times Paul mentions it. He mentions it in verse 8. He mentions it in verse 9. He mentions it again in verse 14. So from beginning to end, he's talking about the blessing of Abraham, whatever that is. That's what we want to understand this morning, to get this passage right and to learn from it what we're meant to learn from it. We need to understand what is the blessing of Abraham, who's this blessing for, and how is this blessing possible? What makes it possible? What is the blessing of Abraham that this passage is about? Who is that blessing for? And what makes that blessing possible? Those are the three things I hope we'll, we'll uh, understand together through these verses. I want to invite you now to stand in honor of God's word while I read beginning in verse 7 and then all the way through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture... Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is God's Word. You can be seated. Now, 
the first thing I think we've got to say about this text is that Paul's assuming some knowledge about Abraham that not all of us in this room are going to have. So I want to start this morning with some background information before we get to the main point, the main thing Paul's trying to say in these verses. When he talks about the blessing of Abraham, which he alludes to in verse 8, again in verse 9, and then finally in his, in his final verse, verse 14, what's he talking about? What is the blessing of Abraham? Let me just give you the answer, and then I want to spend a couple minutes unpacking it for you, sort of chewing on it together. So when Paul says, when he refers to the blessing of Abraham, here's what he has in mind. He has in mind the reversal of the curse unleashed by God in response to human sin. The blessing of Abraham is the reversal of a curse unleashed by God in response to human sin. And one, way, one reason we know that this is what he has in mind is the context for the story of Abraham. When Abraham comes on the scene, it's in Genesis chapter 12. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about the story of the world, where it came from, how it was made, what happened to unleash all the problems in the world that we know of now and live with now. Abraham, in other words, comes on the scene as just one guy as part of a much larger story, a story as broad as the whole world. And he comes at a point. He's introduced as a character at a point in the story that is dark and growing darker. Genesis tells how the world was made, how beautiful it was when it was made. It tells how God related to the world and to the humans that he put in his own image and gave responsibility over the world in a unique way. Everything, as God made it, was good and beautiful and just exactly what it was meant to be. That's the first couple chapters of Genesis. Then chapter 3 tells the story of sin. A story not just of the disobedience of two people, but of a corruption that didn't stop with those first sinners, but spread from them to their children and effects that went beyond their own lives to touch every part of the world so that the world as Genesis 3 and 4 and so on describe it is still beautiful, but deeply, pervasively broken. The chapters that follow those between where sin comes into the world and where Abraham shows up are some of the most difficult reading that you'll find in, in the Bible. They're ugly, dark chapters. It starts with I mean, the, first, the first fallout that we see after the sin, the, the initial sin unleashed what it did into the world is two brothers at basically at war. A brother who was so jealous, so envious of his other brother that he decided to kill him. By the end of that chapter, you have killing happening all over with no recourse and no remorse, with nothing to stop it. By Genesis chapter 5, you get a genealogy, the main point of which is that every person who lives dies. It's written in a way that ends with, and he died, and he died, and he died, showing this dark cloud just spreading itself over all of human life, touching everything. Chapter 6 opens with what reads like a shocking and bizarre story of basically sexual assault. A world unhinged, a chaotic survival of the fittest style life that's so corrupt, God judges the world with a massive flood. And after the flood, things don't get much better. These early chapters in Genesis are ugly, difficult reading. One pastor described these chapters of Genesis 
this, this, this world gone bad where sin comes in and then spreads like a dark cloud touching, corrupting everything. He described it as a kind of tsunami. Do you remember the, the pictures? Have you guys seen the pictures? Surely most of you have seen the pictures of that 2004 tsunami that hit Southeast Asia. The earthquake in the Indian Ocean that sent in a massive destructive wave on Indonesia and other places. The terror of those who ran for their lives ahead of that wave, clutching their loved ones, running in fear, while it bore down and swept away everything in its path. The destructive power of that tsunami touched everything and everyone. And what Genesis describes in the first 11 chapters is, is a lot like a tsunami. It's, it's a sin that's like, a, like an earthquake, like that one in the, in the Indian Ocean that creates this building wave that just gushes over everything that God made, touching it all, corrupting it. All the abuse, the bigotry, the injustice, the violence, the war and threat of war from every act of selfishness to the reign of death itself, all of it, all of it that we experience today finds its origin story in Genesis. And it's in the context of this cursed world beautiful but broken that Abraham comes on the scene or better that God comes into the life of an average pagan nomadic childless Middle Eastern man who wasn't looking to become anybody's hero it's with the curse as its backdrop that God comes to Abraham with a promise of blessing here's what God says to Abraham when he meets him in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. There it is. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There it is again. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I know there's not a lot in those few verses. There's much that's not spelled out that will get developed later in the story. But what you have in that verse, those, those three verses rather, what you have is the germ form of every good thing promised from God to this world through the rest of the scriptures. What you have in germ form is the new heavens and the new earth where sin will have no place, where there will be no cause for sorrow and where no one will ever die again. You have it all bundled into the promise of blessing to Abraham. It means nothing less than the curse of sin reversed, the goodness of God's world restored, those made in God's image made righteous, just as Abraham was. This promise is the first glimpse of the promise that everything is going to be new. To return to that image of the tsunami, it's almost like you take that footage, as this other pastor said it, it's almost like you take that footage of that wall of water coming in hitting those buildings, sweeping cars, trees, buildings, people away. You know the footage. It's almost like you, you just hit the rewind button and you watch the waters recede and you watch those buildings take shape again. 
The trees go back in the ground. The people are right where they were having fun on the beach. A picture of blessing, of beauty, of joy. That's the blessing of Abraham. That's what God promised he would do through this man who had no reason to expect it. Now, who's it for? That's the main point Paul's wanting to make this morning. This gets us to the heart of what he's doing in this part of the letter. The blessing was assumed. How you get that blessing, how you get in on it. In other words, how you become a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham, an heir to the promise. That part was deeply contested. And friends, it has been ever since. Untold millions of people alive right now look to the blessing of Abraham as Muslim people, Jewish people, or Christian people, but disagree about how you get in on it. And that's what separated Paul from his opponents in Galatia. Different answers about how you get in on this blessing. And here's Paul's answer. This is the answer I want us to know this morning. This blessing, the reversal of the curse and all of its effects, this blessing is for anyone who, like Abraham, believes the promises of God. Or as Paul puts it in the first verse we read, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. What he's going to do in this, in this section, is what I mentioned earlier in the introduction to the sermon, he's going to show that Abraham has always been on his side. That, that this faith that Paul is talking about, that he's pinning his whole life and ministry to, is not a new idea. It's not something Jesus introduced to the world. It was already there at the very beginning in Abraham's response to what God promised to do in his life. It's always been about faith. So what Paul's going to do is in in verse 7 to 9, he's going to say, Abraham's on my side. The way you get this promise, a blessing, is faith. Always has been. And then in verses 10 to 12, he's going to say, the law, well, the law was never meant to do what only faith can do. The law that, that you're false teachers, these teachers who are coming after me who are trying to turn your head, that law, they just misunderstand what it is. It can't bring you this blessing. So he's going to do something that he's already done a few other times in this letter. He's going to put faith and obedience to the law next to each other. He's going to say yes to faith. This is how you get God's blessing in your life. No to the law. This is not how you get God's blessing in your life. But now he's going to do it with Abraham to show that the law, if you include Genesis as Israel would have, If you include the stories of Abraham as part of what the law was in their life, it's on his side too. These guys have just misunderstood it. That's what he's going to say. So I want to try to help you see from verses 7 to 9 positively that getting in on the the blessing of Abraham is about faith. I want to show you how he makes that case. And then in verses 10 to 12 to show you how he's saying the law was never meant to do that. Yes to faith, no to works of the law. So positively, in verses 7 to 9, what Paul's doing is making a kind of biblical argument. It's a commentary. He's going to cite several passages and explain them. All the the passages in these verses are from Genesis. And he's going to show that what pleased God in Abraham was not Abraham's own goodness, worthiness, or righteousness, but his faith in God's promises. In fact, the the first time that he mentions Abraham is in a passage we read last week together, verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Paul's quoting there from Genesis chapter 15. That's where Abraham responds to the promise that God makes to him in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham responds, 
what, what, what that passage describes is God giving Abraham righteousness before him. Basically saying over Abraham, you are worthy before me. You are affirmed and accepted by me. You are what you are supposed to be. Not because Abraham was righteous, but because he believed what God was going to do for him. One thing, when he says that, that, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, it's one thing being counted as or credited as another thing. He wasn't already worthy. He was counted as worthy. And the reason was his faith. You can see this, friends, in the backdrop of the story. Before God comes to Abraham, when he comes to him, it's not because he's the perfect fit for world redemption. In fact, it's, it's almost like God chose the guy who is the least likely fit for the specific promises he was about to make. He was making him the promise of a land that as it would develop through the story of the Bible would become the whole new heavens and the new earth, a new place to be with God. He was promising him a land. This guy was almost certainly a nomadic shepherd. He had no land. He just lived on the, on the go, taking his sheep wherever he could get food for them. It's not like he's starting with some sort of global real estate tycoon who's got great holdings already and, and some potential to expand. Let's start with him. No, he starts with a guy who, who has nothing to offer for the specific thing God was promising him. He was promising him not just land, but a great nation of people. From you, I will build a people. And you look up at the stars, he tells Abraham later. How many of them are there? You can't count them. Your descendants will be more than them. Look at the grains of sand on the beach. How many are there? You you can't count those. That's the people who will come from you. My people. But he was choosing a man who had no children. A man who, along with his wife, was already too old to have any children. The rest of the story makes clear that God didn't choose Abraham to start a new world because of his strong moral character either or because of his organizational genius or really any, any other reason to put him head and shoulders above any other peer. God started with someone who would have nothing to contribute to what God was going to do in and through him. The only thing Abraham brought was the only thing Abraham needed. He looked at what God promised him. A world that was put in front of him by words, but that he could not see yet. And he believed. He believed God could do what he knew he couldn't do for himself. And this faith, God counted as worthy. And this faith, verse 7 tells us, defines all who are in his family. Verse 8 then quotes Genesis chapter 12, which I read earlier. Reaching back a couple chapters from Genesis 15. It's like he's reading Genesis 12 through Genesis 15. Genesis 15 tells us that what makes Abraham worthy is his faith, not anything he did. And now he looks at Genesis 12, the promise that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And he's saying, it's because of faith that all the nations of the world can be blessed. If it was about ethnic purity... If that was how I was going to get blessing to the world, then I couldn't say all the nations of the world will be blessed. They're not all the same. If it was about wisdom or wealth or any other thing that we use to separate ourselves from one another, well, we couldn't promise blessing for the whole world on those terms. But because it's always been about faith, because righteousness comes that way and no other way, then through Abraham, the man of faith, this blessing can spread to anyone who, like Abraham, believes. That's what he says in verse 9. 
those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The family resemblance isn't law, it isn't skin, it isn't even circumcision. It's faith. Those who believe will be blessed with him. That was always the plan. That's what Paul's saying. That's his positive case. But he gets one more jab in before we move on to how this is possible. I want you to see the, the negative thing. He gets one more jab in at the way that the guys he's writing to correct misuse the law. He believes they misunderstand what the law was all about. You can't get into God's blessing through the law. The law only brings a curse, he says. If we're agreed, it's as if he's saying, if we're agreed that the blessing of Abraham has always come through the faith, that, that's going to have huge implications for how we view the law. Whatever the law was for, it wasn't for earning blessing from God. It wasn't for gaining a spot under Abraham's blessing because it could never do that. We're going to talk more in weeks to come about uh, what the law was for, but Paul's not there yet. He's talking now only about what it was not for. Could not get you blessing because verse 10 says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then verse 10 explains why. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to get blessing from the law, you'd have to do it all. Perfectly. And no one can do that. No one ever could. That wasn't its purpose to begin with. It is evident, he says in verse 11, that no one's justified before God by the law. Quoting another passage, the righteous will live by faith. So you can either try to live by faith or, verse 12, the law is not a faith. You can, you can try to live by the law. The one who does them shall live by them. But you can't have it both ways. You can't try to live both ways. They're package deals, one or the other, because they are fundamentally opposite to one another. Now, I know we're in the weeds here. I want to, I want to rise back up above them a little bit more and just say, you return to the, to the main question that Paul's getting at right here. Who is this blessing for? This blessing is everything. We have to get in on this restored world. How do we get in on it? Who's it for? That's the question he's answering. He's answering it in a way that suited his context. People who were really into the Old Testament laws and what it, and what it meant to follow Moses and, and to come from Abraham. He's answering it in the weeds because of his context. But I want to zoom out now and, and make sure that his answer to the question makes sense to you. Who is this blessing for? Probably not who you'd expect. I expect, even in, even in a world like ours, where the, the opportunities we have for self-advancement are basically unprecedented in the history of the world, I still expect that the best opportunities to get in with, for lack of a better word, blessing. Go to those with connections. Those who are born into the right families. Those who belong to the right clubs or have the right resources to pay the right fees or the right people. That whole uh, pay for SAT score scandal is back in the news this week as, as sentences are starting to be handed down on the, on the, the celebrities and wealthy folks who, who try to get their kids into the elite schools by buying them the qualifying test scores. I mean, it's, it's one of those compelling stories that most everybody's going to have to pay attention to. It's, it's interesting. But has anybody ever really... Have any of you been surprised that that was happening? Anybody surprised when you heard that if you have the money, you can buy the scores? I, mean, I wasn't. 
I, I think it fits what you expect, the way you expect the world to work, honestly. Surprise that certain elite schools are more available to some folks than others? Surely not. That's how the world works. But God's new world of blessing isn't like that. Those who get in on this world aren't wealthy. They aren't elite. They aren't those of pure blood or perfect attendance ribbons or whatever. They, they aren't who you'd expect. This world is not for the wise. It's not for the popular or for the successful overachiever. This world is not for those who do to use Paul's language. It's for those who believe like Abraham. For those who have faith, who trust that, that in God's provision, He can make good on promises they can't even imagine. For those who know better than to try to contribute anything themselves. It's for those who know they don't deserve this blessing and couldn't create this blessing, but believe that God will give it to them anyway because he said he would. That's who gets in on the blessing of Abraham. It's for anybody who will have him. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, it raises a question that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. If this blessing of Abraham, which is the reversal of sin and its curse over all the earth, is available to anybody who will trust in him, what makes it possible? How can God count as righteous people who aren't? The answer is not because he shrugs off the truth about these people. The reason that he can offer the blessing of Abraham to anyone who will have it is because the blessing of Abraham comes only in Christ who became a curse for us so that we could receive his blessing by faith. Verses 13 and 14 bring us, friends, into the heart of the gospel. The only way that this, that this blessing goes out to anyone who will claim it, the only thing that makes it possible, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles basically to anyone who will believe this is the heart of Christianity Paul's trying to show how Abraham and the law itself with all of its curses and everything else about the Old Testament was always about Jesus who died and rose again Paul just goes there. There's no transitional word. He just hops right in because Jesus is always relevant. It's always been about him. If he's talking about Abraham, he's really talking about Jesus. When he's talking about the curse of the law, he's already talking about Jesus. Paul's always on topic when he's talking about Jesus. He just goes straight to him. The message of the cross, what happened there, how it's connected to the, the blessing that the whole Bible's meant to promise. Friends, it is not a complicated message. It's really straightforward. Easy to understand but for many of us, very difficult to accept. The heart of Christianity has also been the offensiveness of Christianity in one way or another to every culture that's ever encountered it from Paul's time to ours. So what I want to finish with this morning 
is, is as clear as I can make it, the straightforward message about how God can bless anyone who believes in Him. What makes that blessing possible through Jesus? And then chew for a minute on how we can prepare ourselves to receive that even when it's difficult. The message, as I've said, is really straightforward and it's the heart of Christianity. At the heart of this religion and the message that it brings to the world is a substitution. One person giving his life for another person. Giving his life so that others can live. We can be even more specific. At the heart of Christianity and the message that it offers the world is the message that one person gives his life as a sacrifice. A sacrifice that's meant to absorb punishment. That's meant to carry a curse that was rightly meant for somebody else. Christ, what this means, friends, is that Christ did not die a martyr. His death was an unfortunate turn of events. It was no martyrdom. His death was an execution. He died for a capital offense against a holy God who imposed this sentence on him. Look at the language again of verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By law, we deserve to die for our sins. Christ redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse. That's what happened when he hung on the cross, just as the law had predicted. Just as the law had predicted. He cites it in verse 13. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When you're on a tree, it's a sign. God's curse is on you. You have died for your failure to obey this law. Christ hung there, bearing that curse. Our curse became his. It's almost like Paul's taking it even further. He became our curse. In, in a grace and love that is just beyond what we will ever imagine, Christ chose to let our sins define Him so that he, they wouldn't have to define us. And this substitution, Christ for sinners, is how it's possible for the blessing of Abraham to come to anybody who believes, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter where they're from, Anybody can get in on this redemption because all of it depends on Jesus and on nothing else. Friends, what he's saying when he says that it depends on Christ becoming a curse for us, what he's saying built into that is an implication that is crucial for why the gospel and the blessing of Abraham that it contains can go to anybody from anywhere. It starts with what keeps us from blessing. We all share the exact same barrier separating us from the blessing that we long to experience. We have the same path into blessing because we have the same barrier that needs to be crossed. See, if the barrier to getting into God's blessing were money, as it is for getting into certain elite schools, the wealthy would have a path in that no one else had. If the barrier that, were, that was keeping us back from God's blessing were ignorance, then the learned and the wise would have a path into that blessing that no one else has. If the barrier were the law, the Jews would have the advantage. They had the law. No one else did. They had the roadmap that they needed to get in. But the barrier that separates us from the blessing God has promised is sin and its curse. The brokenness we long to see redeemed 
runs through, flows out of every one of us. We are all part of the problem. We are not safe for the world God has promised. And before we can be blessed, we have to be justified. We have to be declared worthy and by God's grace transformed into the image of His Son. We are separated from blessing, in other words, by exactly the same thing. All of us, no matter where we're from, what else we bring to the table. And because we all suffer on this side of the same barrier, we all have to put our hope in the one and only passage through it. Christ became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. That message is really straightforward. God forgives sinners because Christ paid the price for their sin. But I I think it's just better that we just put it out there and acknowledge it. it. It's a difficult message to accept sometimes for some of us. At one time or another for all of us. And it always has been. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about what it takes for us to hear this message and believe it as Abraham did so that we like Abraham can be counted as righteous despite what we deserve. What is it that, that makes this message off-putting? I think sometimes it's for some some of us and sometimes in places for different reasons there's an aesthetic objection that we have a kind of yuck factor that just rises up on a gut level I don't like the idea of a wrathful God pouring out wrath on the body of an innocent man for, for some of us it's an intellectual objection that rises up it just doesn't make sense why did it have to be this way in our, I mean, at different times, there have been different intellectual problems raised based on the things that shaped that particular time, the assumptions they had, the things they already believed. In our time, I think the most common reaction is that this, this message seems unloving. A, a God who would impose a curse in the first place? That doesn't seem right. Why do you have to do that? To have punished that curse even in Jesus, rather than just forgiving sinners? To be compelled to show wrath? It just seems so beneath the God of love we've imagined and much prefer. It can seem unloving, this message. And that is deeply unfortunate and tragically ironic. I'm convinced that in my own experience, maybe for you too, the trouble with accepting the straightforward message of the cross has come from me pushing too hard for implications that are, that are just unknown for us. I mean pushing, wanting more insight into what one has called the mechanics behind this message. Why did it have to be this way? Maybe inconsistencies that we think are implied in it behind the scenes. Why not simply forgive? How is it just to punish one person for what someone else did? How can one person absorb punishment for the sins of every other person? Why create us in the first place, God? If you knew, we'd be sinful, and then you'd have to judge us. Our minds are filled with questions that the Bible doesn't answer about the mechanics of this substitution. 
But the Bible doesn't leave these questions unanswered because the authors of the Bible don't appreciate their weight. Not because they were blind to the questions begged by this message. The Bible leaves many of our questions unaddressed, unanswered, because the God behind the Bible chooses not to answer all the questions we would like answered. And the only way to accept the goodness of this gospel, to hear its message and to taste something of its sweetness, the only way to see in it the depths of God's love is first, friends, to accept how small our understanding really is. How little of this world and its ways we understand. How vast is the darkness into which we can't see. Only the humble will grasp this message. Only those who recognize the limits of their own understanding can be grateful for what they are allowed to understand. That isn't what I want. I'd so much rather the barrier to God's blessing or the path into it be logical consistency. That'd be a game I could win. That's me in my wheelhouse. That's what I prefer the world privileged. And God in His wisdom has chosen to shame the wise. He's chosen foolishness to put me in my place. He's chosen to leave us in the dark on a whole host of issues we would like to know more about when it, when, it, when, it, when it comes to the message of Christ crucified for sinners. But if we can accept that, if we can recognize we are not entitled to see all things, that we are not gifted with the ability we would require to do quality control on what God has done to redeem the world, if we can accept that the darkness in our understanding is vast and far beyond what we even can see, then we're ready to notice that a light is shining. Recently, in an old article on this, on, on this idea of substitution at the heart of the gospel, I read from an author who used the image for, for the gospel message of a, of a kind of lamppost in a vast darkness. It doesn't illuminate everything. It leaves darkness, black darkness, all around it that you can't see into. And the Bible is fine with that. It's fine focusing on the meaning of Christ's death for us rather than the mechanics behind it and answering all the questions that, that logical consistency nerds would ask of it. The Bible's okay with that. The question is, can we be? Because in this light, limited though it is, in the circle that it casts, there is life. What do we see in the light that is shining. Not everything we want to know, but everything we need to know. And this message of Christ crucified is not a violation of some sort in God's track record of love. The New Testament tells us this substitution, this right here, it defines God's love for us. When the New Testament tells us that God is love, the cross is what those authors have in mind. It's what they mean. The cross is how we know who we're dealing with for all the other things we will never know about him and his ways. Because in the cross we see that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him, whoever, will not perish as they deserve to under the law, but no everlasting life reserved for the heirs of Abraham. In the New Testament, we're told by Jesus himself that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. In John, we're told that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And in this, God has demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know what God's love looks like, the New Testament points you over and over and over again to the circle of light and of vast darkness cast by this gospel. It tells you not everything you'd want to know, but everything you need to know. But only the humble can receive it. Only by accepting we don't get to do quality control. We just get to embrace what's been offered to us. Can we enjoy the sweetness of this message? A Christ who doesn't die for us. A Christ whose death is just a martyrdom, tragic, unexpected, unfortunate is a Christ who cannot reveal to us the depth of God's love for sinners. I heard another example recently from an old book on the atonement, on Christ's death for us, that talked about other ways of explaining Jesus' death, you know, as a moral example, as something to show us the depth of his love, something to inspire love in us, but not to take our place under God's punishment. The image that was used in that book was of a person sitting on the end of a dock as someone blows past him, running out for this deep lake, diving in, shouting, I love you, as he hits the water and drowns. I mean, that's what Christ's death was. If it shows us God's love just because he was willing to die, maybe, but it seems pretty random. It seems arbitrary. What's loving about just going off and drowning? But, but it's a different image if you're the one in the water, you're not sitting on the dock. You're in the water. You have no flotation device. You can't swim anymore. You're out of energy. And someone dives off of that dock screaming, I love you, grabs you in your need, drags you to the dock, and drowns, saving your life. Well, then I love you takes on a whole new meaning. It is deeper than what it could possibly have been otherwise. And that's the message Paul is putting at the heart of Christianity the only way it's possible for anyone who will have it to experience the blessing of Abraham is because Christ loved us at the cost of his own life because his father sent him to bear that cost and he did so joyfully. That's the message, friends. You can enjoy it right now, this morning, if you'll have it. You have only to believe as Abraham did. Father, we know that we need the power of your spirit if we're to believe as Abraham did. We ask that you would give us faith because we don't have enough on our own. We ask that you would protect the faith that you've given us because we won't be able to hold on on our own. And we pray that you would give us hearts that are so moved by the record of your love for us in Jesus that we live in peace and we share that peace with others. We pray for motivation, mobilization based on the message of Christ who became a curse for us so that we could be redeemed from the curse that we bore. 
We pray now, Father, that your love would encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.